I want to welcome all our listeners from across Canada and elsewhere. And welcome to the Recovery Project. Today we're going to talk about global debt. You know, is there another crisis looming? And what does this mean for people around the world? This discussion is part of something called the Recovery Project here in Canada, which is sponsored by some think tanks, including Canada 2020, headed by Tim Barber, the Center for Global Progress, headed by Matt Brown, and the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy, where I work. I promise you, for all those listeners, that we've got an amazing panel here today that bring just an incredible breadth of experience and knowledge, a very practical knowledge and experience to this kind of conversation of global debt and what it means actually from many dimensions. Online now, we have three of our guests. We're hoping to a fourth will join us. But let me start with the introductions. I'll start with Jayadi Ghosh, who is a very well-known global developmental economist who um, works at the University of Jawaharlal Nehru uh, University in New Delhi. And she's an author of very many books. She has broad research interests from globalization to income inequality to poverty to gender. And she's uh, been advisor to many governance and she, governments, and she's a highly awarded social scientist. So welcome, Jayeti. We have the Right Honorable Ralph Goodell, who almost I'm sure everybody in this country knows. He's uh, been a member of parliament from Saskatchewan, particularly the federal member of parliament from Regina, Muscana, for more than a quarter of a century. He's also a member of parliament in the province of Saskatchewan. He is uh, somebody who has worked under three prime ministers. He was a cabinet minister in many portfolios, um, natural resources, agriculture, public works, public safety, and not least the Ministry of Finance, where he was the Minister of Finance from 2003 and six. Welcome, Ralph. Very glad to be here. And then we also have online, it is probably one of our more uh, famous international economists from Canada, Mr. William Bill White. Bill is somebody who has you know, enormous experience in Canada, as, you know, who a lot of you, certainly public servants will know that was the deputy governor of the Bank of Canada, responsible for international issues throughout most of the, you know, the 1980s. Uh, he's, he went to the, the Bank of International Settlements, where he was you know, a senior advisor on a range of issues. Um, he led and chaired a very important committee on the economy and development for the OECD. And now he's a fellow at the, uh, of the CD Howe. And uh, so welcome, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So like our conversation, and we're going to sort of jump right into it. Our missing panelists, we hope will join us, is Sonia Gibbs, who works as a managing director of the Institute of International Finance. I'll introduce her and I hope Sonia will join us quickly. I think uh, obviously we're in the middle of a global pandemic, something we haven't seen in a hundred years uh, that we're all kind of experiencing. And uh, it's had enormous impact on the world economy, on the lives of humans uh, all around the world. You know, even in the lead up to this you know, public health crisis, I think over the last year or so, there were concerns about global debt. And, uh, and we've seen a number of waves of you know, global debt going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s that have often resulted in, in crises. So there was concerns even in late 2019, even before the pandemic became a reality, that we could be uh, facing a potential crisis or a huge amount of debt distress. And there's so many different dimensions to this. That's why we have this terrific panel. I'd like to start, if I could, Bill, with you. You were one of the sort of famous economists back in the lead up to the 2008 financial crisis, 
who were warning people that we were headed for a crisis. You had concerns about you know, monetary policy and financial markets were operating. Are we headed for a period of significant debt distress in the world? I guess prior to the pandemic, I had been saying that the conditions that we had experienced prior to 2007 and 8 that led to the crisis then, uh, those conditions, in fact, had, had um, been exacerbated significantly by the monetary policies that we had followed during the entire post-crisis period. And in a, in a sense, when you think about it, um, if you have very low interest rates or very easy credit conditions, it is not at all surprising that people will take on more debt because it's easier to get a hold of. And um, I think this is, I'm, I'm now quoting Sonia's numbers, but if you look at the sort of debt levels calculated by the IIF, uh, in 2008, we were talking global debt of 280% of GDP. And by 2019, it was 320% of GDP. It had gone up by 40 percentage points. So if you, if you think about a crisis as a period of deleveraging, think again, because we've gone in the very opposite direction. And to make matters even worse, a very large chunk of that stuff went into the emerging markets. And whereas in 2008 and 9, you could look upon the emerging markets as being sort of part of the solution to the crisis, by 2019, I think they were part of the problem. And in a certain sense, even before the pandemic, my thought was, and I won't go into all the details, we can go into this later, I thought the global economy was an accident waiting to happen. And the only really interesting question was what might be the trigger? Uh, now, we've seen the trigger. It could have been an endogenous um, process, uh, overstretch, eventually the elastic band snaps, or it could have been something exogenous. And in this particular case, it was, it was truly exogenous. It was the pandemic. But the problem is that the patient had preconditions, and that's what's really going to make it difficult going forward. Thank you, Bill. So I'd like to, to welcome for our listeners and our viewers, and a big welcome to Sonia Gibbs. Thank you so much for being with us. And Sonia, just this by way of introduction for our listeners. So Sonia is a Managing Director of Sustainable Finance at the Institute of International Finance. And so this is somebody that, oh, you know, that looks at these numbers, probably has as deep of understanding of almost anybody in the world, provides weekly updates, oversees the Global Debt Monitor that is, you know, tracked very carefully. And she works at an institute, I think, that was created and correct me if I'm wrong, Sonia, but it was really created because of a global debt crisis that happened many decades ago. And so, you know, Sonia brings like, in this enormous experience, uh, you know, working at the Institute of International Finance, but also in the private sector as well for, you know, the large investment bank, Numeria International, where she studied global debt and sovereign debt issues and provided all kinds of advice. So, Sonia, like your take, is this a crisis waiting to happen? Like, can you help our listeners just understand just the enormous magnitude of debt, and how should we look at debt? Is there, what are the different components? First of all, thank you very much for, for inviting me, and sorry for, for joining a bit late here. Indeed, you know, that is the whole point of the, the IIF, that we were created after the Latin American debt crisis, and to be a voice for, for the private sector in discussions that typically tend to involve the, the borrower and the official sector, whether that's the international financial institutions, the IMF World Bank, or central banks, 
So the private sector often has been outside the discussions, and I think that's, that's very relevant in today's context of debt sustainability, particularly for some of the more vulnerable countries that have been hit hard by, by COVID. So one of the things we've been working on quite intently is this debt service suspension initiative for poor and, and vulnerable countries. So bringing a private sector perspective, but, but thank you for that. Uh, in, in terms of, of debt, and I think uh, Will, William put it very well, a lot of the debt accumulation in this past decade of super low rates and avid search for yield has been in emerging markets. And although public sector debt levels haven't risen that much in emerging markets, so just as a point of comparison, on average across our universe of emerging markets, government debt, public sector debt, is right around sort of 50-55% of GDP, whereas in mature economies, that level's well over 100%, something like 110% on average, which is very high. If you think about a benchmark, you know, your traditional benchmark for, whoops, we're getting into trouble, is around 60% of GDP. You know, 110% of GDP is, is very high. And to your question about, is a debt crisis brewing? I think you can pretty much trace everything back to that. Global debt levels, in, and so mature markets, the focus would be on, on public sector government debt, are simply unsustainable. You know, so we've been coming up with all kinds of creative ways, especially since the, the global financial crisis, to, to, to keep the party going, you know, via low interest rates and, and QE, and continue to sort of keep economic growth going. At the same time, a whole host of related problems, whether that's in high yield markets or leverage loans, some, in some countries, household debt is an issue, are brewing and bubbling. And they've been simply kind of on the back burner because, you know, nothing's, nothing's been, been too wrong. There's been no real catalyst. And, and one of the things that this COVID pandemic has done is serve as a catalyst for bringing these problems to the fore. And then I'll just add that for emerging markets, the debt buildup has been more in the corporate sector, non-financial corporate debt, where aggregate debt to GDP levels in the emerging market corporate sector are now well over 90%, in fact, higher than in mature markets. And that's really striking. Of course, a lot of that is China. You know, we know that China has a ticking time bomb of in, in corporate debt markets, but not just China. And it's also a set of countries that don't have such long experience in managing this debt and managing it well. You have governance issues that arise around that. So higher than mature markets. And um, also a lot of that debt is related to the state. So while you know, nominal public sector debt in emerging markets may not be that high, a lot of these firms are state-owned or partially state-owned or have some kind of implicit or explicit state guarantee so that all translates to contingent liabilities for, for the state in the event of distress, which is exactly where we're headed now. So yeah, not sleeping well these days. I'm sorry, Sonia. So if we could turn to Jayendi, then we'll get, we'll get to Minister Goodell to kind of get a, to ground this in a Canadian you know, kind of experience. And Jayendi, like your, your, your perspective as a developmental economist, um, you know, somebody that has, uh, you know, understands developing emerging markets very well. Jay, what do you think the impact could be of this rising debt, particularly in emerging markets? How could it affect our ability to hit some of these sustainable developmental goals or other major concerns that you'd like to share? 
Well, first of all, I just want to say I agree completely with what's been said already. And I think, uh, I think Mr. White put it very well about how there are these preconditions or if you like these comorbidities in, in, in the system which made uh, the impact of the pandemic so much worse. But I think, first of all, let's face it, the, the sustainable development goals could not have been met before the pandemic without an additional massive increase in debt. So we were already talking unrealistic goals before the pandemic. We have, I think, as, as Sonia has pointed out very well, we have already a massive increase in developing country debt. And what makes it particularly problematic is that so much of it, other than in China, is denominated in dollars. And that makes it really problematic because it's not just something that you can kind of issue your own currency and get out of. And a lot of it is bond market debt, a growing proportion, I think, and for at least the 12 emerging markets that I looked at, something like 35% is now bond market debt, which is also extremely volatile, much more volatile even than a lot of the others have. And so we have a combination of things which were already very, very problematic and which developing countries were already going to find very difficult to repay. Something like 1.8 trillion of the debt is due to be repaid this year. And it's not going to get repaid. I think we have to be very clear, it's not going to happen. But what is also the case is that you have this very, very unstable and unsustainable debt situation. And then you have this pandemic, which even before you get the illness, you get this massive economic tsunami of declining foreign exchange earnings. You get a collapse in export revenues. You get a complete elimination of all tourism revenues. You get a decline in remittances and you get your own impact of a lockdown. So your own economies are shrinking and contracting quite apart from the foreign uh, the sort of headwinds from the global economy. So in a situation that was already unsustainable, you now have this complete collapse of foreign exchange earnings with which you need to repay your debt. And you have a contraction of your own economic activity, which is going to make you really difficult to repay even domestic debt. So I think for me, the basic bottom line here is that at least half of the current debt is, cannot be repaid this year, for sure, probably more. And as soon as everybody recognizes this and does something about it, the better. Because kicking the can down the road, we know, has always ended in tears. Thank you, Jay Eddy. Last but certainly not least, we go to the Right Honorable Ralph Goodell, our Minister of Finance, Minister of Many Portfolios. Mr. Goodall, I'd love to get your take on, on you know, the potential looming crisis. We, in Canada, we didn't have a financial crisis per se in 2008-9. We didn't lose banks to, you know, to the same degree that we, we saw to our neighbors to the south. Um, but we did, we kind of experienced a major, you know, maybe we had our fiscal crisis, so to speak, in the mid-1990s. And you saw, you know, you, we handled um, you know, we had to take some very tough measures you would have experienced in different portfolios. Finally, when you mm -hmm. became finance minister in 2003, you made sure that going into the financial crisis in 2008, that our books were in pretty good shape, that debt to GDP was on a decline in those much better times. Is Canada prepared for this debt crisis? How will we participate in it? Is it will it be more like the 2008 financial crisis, where it kind of affected us from outside our borders? Or should we be concerned about the big increases in debt in Canada? I think you always have to be uh, concerned and wary with respect to, uh, to debt. Uh, but I, I don't think from the Canadian perspective, our own 
domestic circumstances, I think we can work our way through this situation with a good deal of, uh, of internal self-confidence. That cannot be cockiness. It cannot be complacency. It cannot be carelessness. Uh, but I think well-placed confidence that we are in a position to manage this situation from a, from a Canadian point of view. Uh, back in the uh, uh, in the 90s, when uh, when we faced our most significant uh, uh, financial concerns, the uh, debt to GDP ratio in Canada was approaching 70 percent. Uh, the uh, the cost of servicing the debt was consuming an enormous amount of uh, of the um, the the annual budget. Uh, it was literally sucking the oxygen out of the air and diminishing. Uh, the ability of uh, of the government of Canada to make its own sovereign economic decisions. So something clearly had to be done. Some tough decisions were taken. We worked our way through that period for uh, uh, about five years that it took us to uh, to uh, get through it. Um, but at the end of the day, we were recording. Uh, I think it was nine consecutive balanced budgets, uh, and uh, had. Uh, built Canada into uh, the uh, the best fiscal situation in the G7 uh, and uh, it was the uh, uh, the best fiscal situation in Canada uh, since 1867 so uh, the uh, the experience then uh, difficult while we were working through it a remarkable degree of uh, uh, public consensus in support of what had to be done uh, the uh, the government of that day uh, continued to win majority government after majority government after majority government. So clearly there was there was public support uh, behind the initiative. Uh, it it took a lot of uh, consultation, a lot of engagement, a lot of explanation, uh, a lot of hard work and goodwill. But uh, that effort from then I think is is paying off now. Uh, because we went into this situation quite different from previous ones. This is a, an economic problem caused by a health problem. Um, and I guess the reality of that is we're not going to be able to totally fix the, uh, the economic circumstances uh, until we actually fix the health problem. Uh, and that is uh, a global phenomenon and uh, that's where that slogan we're all in this together uh, i think is particularly poignant um it's uh, it, it's easy enough to turn inward and uh, focus exclusively on your debt domestic situation but this problem for us and for uh, the world is not going to be solved until we find the ways to deal with it globally uh, and uh, in that regard we are indeed all in this together when this started, we had uh, AAA credit rating. We had the best debt to GDP uh, ratio uh, in the in the G7. Uh, our domestic debt, our, our debt carried by the government of Canada, was largely domestic. It was uh, relatively low cost and long term, uh, so it was being uh, managed uh, properly. The economy was uh, was growing. Jobs were being created at a rate that uh, hadn't been seen in, in, some, in some 40 years. So you go through all of the indicators and from a fiscal point of view, uh, Canada was in good shape to be able to cope with, uh, with the downturn. We'd also taken some policy measures to uh, uh, improve uh, household incomes and reduce household costs and so forth. And that uh, uh, had the effect of lifting some, uh, 
um, a million Canadians uh, out of poverty, and including 300,000 uh, children. Uh, so all of that taken together, uh, Canada was uh, uh, was standing in, uh, in in good stead. Um, we've obviously uh, had to take uh, enormous decisions that have uh, that have. Uh, uh, increase the uh, the costs of government, increase the uh, uh, the debt burden. Again, with a broad consensus of support uh, behind it. Um, we were just chatting before going on the uh, on the program this morning that we've had more uh, federal, provincial, territorial consultations and collaboration uh, in the last three months than in living memory. More first ministers meetings. Uh, Governments at different levels are getting along with each other, collaborating with each other. Fiscal policy is working well with uh, uh, with monetary policy. It's been a, a very positive experience. So as awful as the pandemic is, and as tragic uh, the circumstances that cause uh, so many people uh, to, to lose their, their lives, especially the elderly, um, Canada has, uh, I think, positioned itself to deal with this as well as uh, or better than uh, um, than most other countries uh, around the world, um, we've got to be wary of the of the real uh, soft spots or hot spots. Though we've discovered those in long-term care homes, uh, that is a tragedy that is going to demand uh, very um, urgent attention as we uh, as we as we come out of this. That is uh, one of the set of issues that. Uh, uh, that will, uh, I think, rivet uh, uh, attention. Uh, the um, the issue now is how do you make the transition when the time is right? Two questions: When is the time right to make the uh, the transition to try to uh, wind down the support programs and wind down the stimulus packages. I think one one lesson from 2008 is uh, don't do it prematurely because we had a, a bumpy recovery coming out of 2008 uh, and that was partly because in, in my view um, some of the uh, stimulus and support measures were uh, were withdrawn uh, too quickly. Um, uh, an, another question uh, that I think is a reality coming out of this situation uh, is the level of household debt. And that was referred to by some of the other panelists. Um, it's, it's very high in, uh, in Canada, household debt. In previous economic difficulties, we've relied on rampant consumer spending to drive or, or pull the, uh, uh, the recovery forward. Uh, that may not be possible this time. Uh, because of the high levels of, uh, of household debt and because people may be a little bit frightened coming out of this experience. Uh, do they want to spend, 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 or do they want to save, save, save? Uh, and if, if that's the mentality coming out and that's not bad, uh, then uh, we need to remember that measures like uh, tax cuts or income subsidies as a recovery tool may not be the most effective. Uh, because people will be more inclined to save it rather than invest it and uh, and, and contribute to uh, to growth. So lots of lessons to uh, to learn. Uh, by comparison to the the rest of the world, I think Canada is in a a very fortunate position. We can't be cavalier about it, but we've got some fundamental strengths that we can uh, that we can build on. 
but we need to remember that this problem is not totally solved for us until the rest of the world sees a solution as well. And I'm particularly concerned about levels of debt in highly indebted low-income countries where the burden will be absolutely the greatest. Thank you, sir. So actually, so Mr. Giddell talked a lot about some of the preconditions, existing conditions that um, will have an impact on our ability to manage this debt. Maybe if I could go just another round before we, we start taking some questions from the audience. But this, explore this issue from your different perspectives, that relationship between the public health crisis and maybe the shape of the, you know, this recovery that all of you talked about. And, you know, I'd start with Jayeti already talked about, like developing economies, emerging market economies are gonna to struggle to pay debt even going into prior to the crisis. Your sense of how this pandemic without a vaccine, how does it impact the shape of the recovery? And how does that shape of this recovery you know, potentially, you know, impact our ability to deal with debt. And, you know, on top of it, if you have thoughts about stimulus, like, are we going to need additional stimulus, like we had in 2009, 10, in, in many, you know, economies, they actually just ask, help us grow the economy. So maybe if I, again, if we can just do another round, we'll start with William. Well, I think the, um, the debt levels now, uh, I think it was Jayati who, who made the, the point earlier on, and Minister Goodall has referred to it too, the, the, the debt problem varies depending on where you are. You know, there's corporate debt problems, big problems in many countries, not least China, as uh, Sonia's mentioned. Household debt is a huge problem in many, many countries, advanced countries. Uh, property prices are very, very high. The debt levels associated with it, very, very high. You see this all in Scandinavia and Israel. Uh, you, the list just goes on and on. And it's starting now in many emerging markets as well, where the consumer debt is starting to rise. So we, we've got a, a broad-based problem here. And frankly, I think there will need to be a significant degree of fiscal stimulus going forward. I think monetary stimulus has um, reached the end of the reached the end of the line. I think it's causing more harm than good in certain ways because it encourages still more debt. So we're going to have to rely on the fiscal thing. And I think for most of the big countries, um, the markets have already shown a great deal of patience. And I hope that they will continue to show that patience to continue to allow them to refinance themselves. Having said all of that, that there's, there's, there's need for fiscal stimulus and we'll probably get it. One of the things that I think we really have to face up to is what Jayata referred to, is the need for debt restructuring and for debt write-offs. And um, it's something, of course, the creditors, Sonia, the creditors don't want to talk about in the first instance. But I'm reminded of Bill Rhodes in the old days when uh, you know he'd talk about emerging market and he'd bring the heads of the big banks into a room, and, you know, lock the door and basically say, "Gentlemen." Um, you can take 50 cents on the dollar, or you can take nothing on the dollar. But 100 cents on the dollar is not on the table. And we need to do an awful lot more thinking about restructuring. Uh, the G30, uh, the IMF, uh, the OECD through Working Party 3, all of these people have been doing a lot of work to indicate that the judicial and administrative procedures we have for debt restructuring are totally inadequate in most countries. And what that means is that if you don't face up to getting orderly restructuring, you will wind up with disorderly 
restructuring, which is basically the Keynesian paradox of thrift or Irving Fisher's debt deflation. So I think we need to be putting a lot more effort into those, one might say rather mundane issues of your administrative and your judicial procedures for dealing with an unsustainable debt problem in an orderly way. Thank you, Bill. So Sonia, is there, is there a path forward that looks more orderly than disorderly um, with respect to debt management and, and, and one that you know, doesn't rock the boat too much with respect to the global economy? I think, you know, really over the past two to three years, I'd say there's been a big ramp up both in the official and the private sector on two sort of interrelated questions. One is reaching sustainable development goals and in particular addressing inequality issues that have really come to the fore in the decades since the, the financial crisis. And the other is how you go about, you know, working through some of these, these debt issues. Um, so is there an orderly way forward? I, I think, you know, and also building in sustainability considerations into kind of debt management and, and debt restructuring, right? So it does you no good, for example, to, to restructure a, a country's debt if the provisions aren't made for sustainable growth thereafter. In other words, if the, if the mm -hmm. ability of the country to function after its debt has been restructured isn't insured, then you, you're just storing up future problems. Um, process, you know, there, there are a lot of elements to, to the process of, of, of this, and, and part of it is transparency. One of the things that we're missing, one of the biggest gaps, I guess, in between where we are now and an orderly mechanism for addressing debt distress and debt restructuring is, is a lack of transparency, and this is very fundamental. Um, it's outside of sort of publicly traded bond markets, for example, it's very difficult to know exactly who owes what to whom. Mm -hmm. Creditor base, especially for emerging markets, is entirely different than it was 15, 20 years ago, when most of that debt was owed to official bilateral or multilateral creditors. Now you have creditor, official bilateral creditors who are outside the well-established structure of the Paris Club for restructuring. And, and chief among these, of course, is China, which is a tremendously important international lender. And you also have far more commercial credit. Some of that is banks. And if you're talking about a, a process for restructuring or forbearance or rolling over that service suspension like we've been talking about, there are established mechanisms in place pertaining to commercial banks. It's not to say it's easy, it's still very complex. But bondholders, it's an entirely different story. And that's something that we've been discussing a lot in the context of this debt service suspension initiative. Because you also then factor in the question of fiduciary responsibility, right? So, you know, you, you, if you're a large asset manager, these are not, this is not your money. And even if you personally would like to say, this is a great cause, I want to uh, forgive the debt or suspend the service or what have you, can you do that in your capacity as a fiduciary? Yep. These are really thorny issues. And then, you know, bonds are, are also widely dispersed, right? Who, who holds the, I might have some in my own, you know, portfolio or, you know, uh, Joe down the road. Getting all of those people to agree that this is the right <clears throat> thing to do is extremely, it's a, it's a challenging process. 
sort of the difference between corporate and sovereign debt as well, right? And the and the the problems with state-owned enterprises and contingent liabilities there. So I think we're we're pretty far from having an orderly way to look at all of the problems that are coming down the road at us. That's probably the one sure thing we do know is that next several years are going to be a, bring a tremendous wave of of debt problems. Um, but there is progress being being made toward toward finding these solutions. Thank you, Sonia. So, so Bill, did you want to jump in? I just wanted to add, I, I actually chaired a committee of um, central bankers after the Mexican crisis in 1995 mm -hmm. on collective action clauses and uh, different ways to deal with the bondholder problem. And it took almost 15 years before there was any real progress on that front. And of course, there hasn't been a, a great deal of progress since because most of the outstanding stock still doesn't have uh, collective action clauses in them. We've had this problem now with, what was it, ML, MNL, the, the, the vulture funds to do with Argentina the last time around. Arguably, we've gone backwards, not forwards on this. And it really does indicate the need for international cooperation to try to to, to, to push this thing forward. Uh, because as it stands at the moment, I think as you just said, Sonia, there's, there's still so much more to do. And of course, the emerging markets much more reliant on bonds and market financing than getting the money from Bill Rhodes. Um, it's, a very different, it's a very different world and a more dangerous world. And we haven't made much progress, it seems to me, in terms of managing it. Well, if I could just I'll move to Jayeti, we'll come around. There'll be lots of there'll be some questions coming, I'm sure, from the audience, which I'll get to. But Jayeti, your since and Sonia talked a bit about this, like the buildup of debt, you know, over the past since the 2008 financial <laughs> crisis, particularly in emerging developing economies, is was some of that debt in your sense was it was it output enhancing kind of debt? Like you know, notwithstanding the fact we're emerging and developing economies are going to struggle to pay this debt. Um, but you know, with some of that debt, was it like was it put to good use so that it will boost growth rates and quality of lives for people in in these economies? You know, it varies hugely from country to country. But I think the problem with all this debt restructuring is that you can't always say, well, did you make good use of it as a country? Because there is so much political economy involved in all of these things. So if you look at Argentina now, I see what's happening in Argentina today as a real test case for the ability of the international financial system to actually manage an orderly default. Because let's face it, uh, the previous government of Mauricio Macri made a complete mess of taking a huge amount of debt and not using it for anything useful or productive. And the new government that's coming has been is saddled with an unpayable debt. They have actually put forward a proposal, which everybody, even the IMF agrees, is very reasonable for a restructuring and for a postponement of payment and allowing Argentina to not go into a very, very deep recession, but to actually slightly grow its way out of debt, much as Germany did after the famous London Agreement of the 1950s. This has been rejected so far by the bondholders. And I think it's incredibly foolish because if it's not accepted by Monday, it actually leads to technical default on the part of Argentina. And for me, this actually is, it could have a, a major domino effect across a lot of emerging markets. So I really think it's one of those situations where it's not just the lack of collective action clauses, it's also the short-sightedness of bondholders. So I think uh, Mr. White put it beautifully, you know, you can take 50 cents on the dollar or you can get nothing on the dollar and a big mess, which is one possibility. So I think 
to me, Argentina is a real test case about whether you can actually get that degree of you know, rationality, shall we say, on the part of creditors and debtors to, to evolve some kind of semi-sustainable solutions. But I just want to make one point, which, you know, everybody else has been talking about these big fiscal stimuli. It's all in the developed world. Most of the developing world is actually practicing austerity. And this is very hard to get across because everybody sees all these big you know, packages in the US and Japan and even in the UK and even Germany and previous fiscal hawks all suddenly discovering Keynesianism again. But the most of the developing world is actually going to end up cutting spending. Even the packages that have announced, very few of them go beyond 2% of GDP in terms of additional fiscal spending. And since tax revenues are pretty much going to collapse over the course of the year, it is very possible. I know in India, the additional spending announced is only 1% of GDP so far. And it doesn't account for the fact that as tax revenues decline, they're going to cut other kinds of spending. So we're actually going to have negative fiscal stimuli. It's so yeah. I think you know that the very strong disparity between advanced and developing countries really has to be borne in mind. You're saying, is it going to be a U-shaped recovery? It's not going to be a recovery if we do not get major fiscal expansion. Monetary policy isn't going to cut it, as, as William White pointed out. So I think there is a really strong difference. And if we're all in this together, then it's all the more time for developed countries to realize that you have to enable that fiscal spending through a big expansion in SDR issue, maybe a trillion or one and a half, two trillion, which will enable countries to spend more and will allow developed countries to give a bit of debt relief without even feeling it. So I think this recognition of the big difference right now in terms of policy responses is quite important. Thank you, Jayati. So, Mr. Goodell, what should be an appropriate fiscal stance for Canada like, going forward with all this economic uncertainty globally and even in Canada? Um, we, you know, we, we saw IMF recommended fiscal stimulus for these advanced economies in the neighborhood of 1-2% in 2008, 9, and 10. I've heard uh, another famous economist like Mr. White, Mr. Rubini talked about even 3% for some of these advanced economies in terms of fiscal stimulus. Where should Canada be on the issue of stimulus and what role can Canada play, building on Jayeti's point, in sort of dealing with this broader debt restructuring issues through its work in G20 elsewhere? Uh, well, we've been, we've been working our way through this uh, awful problem over the last several months in step-by-step in -step stages. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the 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 monetary and the fiscal policies that have come forward, and they've they've uh, been crafted to uh, uh, to uh, build successfully together to uh, to uh, keep the uh, the employment base in, intact uh, to compensate for income that was lost uh, and so forth uh, to keep liquidity and uh, uh, for uh, for the big banks for small business for large business and so forth. All of those measures have been rolled out. Uh, they've all been very necessary. Uh, they've been broadly supported. Uh, the arguments are generally uh, more, are they enough rather than are they too much? Um, so the, the, there's, been, there's been, I think, good work done so far. The next phase of this will obviously be identifying exactly the right moment when the emergency measures uh, to deal with the immediate crisis uh, can... Uh, uh, start to be relaxed and, in a sense, replaced with the stimulus and growth measures going forward. 
Um, we haven't quite reached that point yet, but uh, a lot of people are giving uh, a lot of thought about what measures and when to uh, to drive the growth that will be that will be necessary in the wake of uh, of the emergency. Um, one of the considerations is uh, uh, would would further tax cuts work? Would uh, would further uh, income subsidies work? Uh, there seems to be a, a view developing quite strongly that uh, because of levels of household debt and because of the uh, antsiness of consumers about do they want to spend a lot going forward or will they be more in a saving mood, um, the, uh, the measures that, uh, that actually add to income uh, may not be the, uh, uh, the best ones. The more effective ones may be the ones that invest in infrastructure. Uh, for example, I think the general rule will need to be make sure that what you're deciding to invest in uh, will have the effect of driving growth, not just maintaining operations, but driving growth. So the growth you are achieving will be outstripping the cost of stimulating that growth. Uh, if the growth is bigger than the cost of stimulating it, then you can get a virtuous circle going that uh, that will uh, take your recovery to the uh, uh, to the right place. Canada, fortunately, because of the strong uh, fiscal position going into the crisis, uh, is uh, is able to calibrate its response coming out uh, in uh, in uh, that particular way. And and uh, uh, many other countries around the world may not have that may not have that luxury. Uh, as I said earlier. This is an, uh, the economic problem we've got was caused by a health crisis, not an economic <clears throat> crisis. We've got to make sure we're solving that health crisis. That means the, uh, uh, the search for the vaccine, uh, the testing, uh, the, uh, the tracking, uh, the containment measures, all of those need to be uh, prudently in place and not just in the developed world. Uh, but in the, uh, in the developing world as well, where much of the crisis has yet to hit. Uh, so we need to make sure that those health measures are broadly based uh, where, they, where they are needed. Secondly, I think we have to remember, as all of our uh, uh, guests on the panel this morning have said, this is global. The problem will not be solved for any of us until it is solved for all of us. So global cooperation is absolutely essential. That may mean that in the wake of this crisis, we need to examine uh, new international financial institutions. The Bretton, Wood, the Bretton Woods organizations have been there for, what, 75 years, 70, 75 years. Uh, they've been refreshed a bit from time to time. But the circumstances, like the structure of debt and the way it is held around the world, uh, may need to be a new factor. Uh, that trigger us to uh, uh, examine uh, new financial institutions. Um, I would say there, there, there are two things from the recent past we should think about and, uh, and use. Um, in, in 2004, 2004-2005, uh, Tony Blair created the Blair Commission for Africa. Uh, and it did uh, a tremendous amount of work in examining questions related to debt in Africa uh, and, in, uh, and in lesser developed uh, economies, especially in highly indebted uh, low-income uh, economies. Uh, and some of the measures there, including outright debt forgiveness, uh, 
uh, in certain circumstances uh, may well need to be revisited. That whole initiative got sidetracked by the global concern about the risk of terrorism. Uh, and so the, uh, the full uh, pursuit or implementation of the Blair recommendations uh, uh, was never completed. It's, it's time, I think, to, to refresh that, that work, uh, bearing in mind where the heaviest burden of this debt falls, uh, which is uh, in the uh, uh, emerging markets and the lesser developed economies. Uh, and secondly, we've got an institution. It is the G20. Um, uh, and it, it may be better positioned than some others uh, to take a leadership role on these two issues, making sure that the health measures are broadly and appropriately spread around the world and not hoarded or restricted to the to the wealthier parts of the world. Uh, so make sure that the that the the health effort is truly global, uh, and uh, using the G20 to provide uh, the leadership and the collaboration and the and the innovation to uh, uh, show leadership and planning among countries to, uh, to deal with the financial and economic consequences, including debt coming out of, uh, out of the pandemic. The G20 is there, uh, it should be used. It is probably best positioned of many organizations uh, to be effective if it gets effective leadership. We're going to take some questions from the audience now. And what I'd like to do, if you're okay with it, is I will um, direct them to a few of you to just to handle these questions. And if we could keep it short, because we're getting close to the, the end of the session. And again, thank you so much. But one question really builds on where Minister Goodale left off. And this, maybe if I could direct this to, to William and to Sonia. It deals with international institutions. And so Jeff, from Jeff Passmore, are we witnessing the emergence? Sorry, no, from Gavin Charles. In your opinion, are multilateral institutions well-equipped to coordinate the international economic response uh, to recovery to COVID-19? And it's just it's your thoughts, uh, William and Sonia, just on that question from Gavin. Are we in good shape? Uh, maybe we'll start with Sonia. You work at you know, the Institute of International Finance. It's obviously will probably, it's gonna play a key role one way or another. Um, are we in good shape to deal with this you know, upcoming financial debt distress? I think the, the role of the international financial institutions, it's a, it's a really good question in that I think sitting here in Washington with these literally across the street, you can see the kind of existential thinking they've been doing about their, their own roles in, since, the, since the crisis, really. Um, they're very well equipped in terms of technical expertise, you know, tremendous uh, knowledge base continually evolving. Um, the, the difficulty, I think, comes in with the political dimension, and, and so mm -hmm. the role of the twenty, you know, as, as the minister mentioned, um, it, it becomes very difficult, because, especially when you have a, a period of, of political tensions between two of the the, the two largest countries in in the world, making it difficult for the G20 to come to consensus. And I think when you think about things like, for example, the the concept of a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism achieving a political consensus around something like that, let alone, you know, having it work in a form that, that private, that works for, for private markets becomes particularly thorny. So I think the, the capacity is certainly there. I think the challenge may be around the, the political consensus to mm -hmm. agree on and execute an approach. Thank you, Sonia. Bill? I've always sort of thought about, um, dealing with crises in sort of three phases. And the question is, 
are the international financial institutions well placed to deal with each phase? And those phases really are management, resolution, and prevention. Um, on the management, and that's where we are at the moment, um, it seems to me that the, the IMF in particular does not have enough resources. They talk about having a trillion dollars, but really only about a hundred billion is available for short-term liquidity support without conditionality. And the other bits are all sort of constrained by conditionality, which in all honesty is the last thing the emerging markets need at this point. So we have a real problem with crisis uh, management. In terms of crisis resolution, I'll only repeat what I, what I said before. That's the question of debt restructuring. And we're a long way away from being able to do what needs to be done on that front. And in terms of crisis prevention, and I think this is, when you start thinking about debt, okay, uh, go back to Frederick Hayek. The, the debt problems don't, the debt problems are, are generated in the, in the upswings, right? The downswing is only sort of a realization of all the excessive risk-taking that was, was done beforehand. And so what we, what we have in terms of crisis prevention is somehow an incapacity to rein in um, the actions of individual governments and individual central banks in particular the Fed, who's still at the center of the dollar-focused dollar system, we have no capacity to, to, to rein these people in because there is no international monetary system. There, is no, there are no rules that discipline anybody in the current non-system. And so everybody goes ahead and does whatever they want. And you see this at the moment with respect to what is, well, not at the moment, what has happened over the course of the last number of years, where all of the world's central banks have been expanding their balance sheet by enormous amounts without any thoughts whatsoever about the implications for the collective good, okay? It's all directed towards their own national best interests. And this is what's really sort of coming a cropper. So the most important thing is to have a really deep think about the character of the international financial monetary system and the kind of rules we want to guide it going forward. Because at the moment, we have no rules at all. Thank you, William. Lots of questions, they're terrific questions. And I would like, there is one question though that it repeats itself uh, through a number of our listeners. Um, it's from Jeff Passmore, and I'd like to direct it to Jayadi and Ralph. And it really deals with this issue of like, what's the world gonna look like uh, after COVID-19, like, will there be a new world order? Are these, are these sort of tectonic plates, are they shifting in a certain direction? Is there gonna be, is there a risk of a significant retreat in globalization? So your thoughts, Jayati, again, is a, a very thoughtful developmental economist. And then, you know, Ralph, obviously from somebody that's been at G20 meetings, um, and it would be great to get, and maybe we close on, the, on, on this question. So Jayati, first, if you can go, then thank you. Yeah, thank you. You know, yes, it's going to be a completely different world. I think there's no question about that. I think we're going to wake up to something that is quite different uh, in many different ways. I think a lot of the global supply chains have been broken and are not going to be easy to recover. I think that the kinds of tensions that we're seeing across the major powers are going to get exacerbated. Also because it's often easier for governments to do that rather than to deal with the problems at home. I think that um, many of the 
sort of assumptions and axioms that underlay that kind of globalization that we have observed uh, will no longer be uh, available to us and will not be possible. So yes, it's going to be a very different world. Will it necessarily be a better world and one in which we can actually move towards more of the wonderful things that Minister Kotel was talking about? I'm not so sure. I think those, uh, you know, the destruction of one particular order doesn't necessarily mean that another order is waiting in the wings to just walk in. You can, you can basically have, uh, I think the philosopher, the German philosopher uh, Wolfgang Strick put it very well, that maybe it's just dead, but there's nobody around to move the dead body out of the way. Mm. And so it's possible, I mean, we would all have to be actively working for a very different set of configurations of international institutions, of much greater global cooperation. I, I think he mentioned G20. Unfortunately, it really is not showing leadership at the, at the moment. And it doesn't look like it's going to be in the immediate future showing leadership. But I do think that when all of the mess has settled, and I think, uh, okay, let me be honest. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. But mm -hmm. when it, the mess has eventually settled, a couple of things will become clear. One that, you know, some of that globalization also generated unsustainable patterns of production consumption. I'm thinking particularly of food globalization, which has been a bit crazy, and financial globalization. I think there will be a reduction of some of those, and that's to the good. I think there will be a recognition of the importance of care, which has been hugely undermined and underestimated and undervalued in all of our societies and the importance of care work, not only as an employment generator, but as something that is necessary for human welfare. I think that's going to perhaps come back a bit more. And I think the significance of planning, which really became a dirty word over the last 30, 40 years. The, the need to recognize the possibilities that are coming ahead, to think of a coherent framework, a coordinated framework in which to deal with it, and uh, a greater respect for nature. Because, you know, let's face it, this is really just act one. And Act 2 is definitely upon us already. We're getting major locusts coming across the uh, North India, which are eating all the crops. And they're coming because of climate change in West Africa. So I think uh, we have to recognize that these are the new things that are going to be facing global societies. And, and I think I'm enough of an optimist to feel that after the, a terrible period when it looks like we're not going anywhere, actually humanity is going to find solutions. Thank you, Jerry. So, Ralph, we're going to close with you. So, you have to be optimistic. Um, <laughs> you have to paint an optimistic picture that we could fix these international organizations. But your thoughts are on what life could look like after COVID-19. But also, if you could address, like in a Canadian context, sir, what could happen between the relationships between the federal governments, the provinces, the municipalities, and First Nations people? Can we be optimistic about coming together, maybe new fiscal arrangements, you know, better relationships, lessons learned from COVID-19. So uh, again, sir, you have to be optimistic. Uh, optimistic and, and brief, <laughs> because I know our, our, our time is, is constrained here. I agree with the other panelists about the, uh, the uncertainty that we're grappling with now, the turbulence, the, uh, the deficiencies in uh, uh, in existing policies and approaches and uh, and institutions um, uh, and and sorting all of that out is not going to be easy uh, but um, uh, who was it that said uh, uh, a, a good crisis is a terrible thing to waste uh, hopefully 
uh, having experienced uh, the the pain that's been created by uh, by the health crisis that led to an economic crisis. But hopefully, those uh, those lessons will be taken to heart, and there will develop uh, the kind of leadership and international determination uh, to use uh, organizations like the uh, uh, the G20 or others uh, to have an earnest and legitimate and and genuine. Uh, search for the kind of solutions around the world uh, to the economic issues that have been discussed, the environmental issues that were were mentioned, and there was a crisis there even before the COVID crisis. I believe there is an opportunity here. Hopefully, we can encourage the respective leadership in all of our countries to uh, use the pain that w- that uh, that has been inflicted by COVID nineteen. Uh, as a catalyst for uh, for bigger solutions, uh, and I again repeat, I recognize the the limitations and the deficiencies of the G20. But of of all the organizations that are out there, there is an opportunity in that one. Uh, perhaps not with the current leadership, uh, but in the next round uh, for uh, uh, for greater results and cohesion to be achieved, for people to be brought together. Uh, and uh, uh, maybe look right directly in the face the uh, the proposition that Bill put on the table. Uh, you can have 50% now, or you can have nothing later. Uh, so let's start with 50% and, uh, and 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 build from there. In terms of Canadian cohesion, I have heard a lot of people remark about how in the world are these different governments of different political stripes at different levels, by and large. With the odd, you know, opposition commentator here and there that may be offside, but by and large, they're getting along with each other like they never have before. I mean, it's truly remarkable to hear uh, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland and Premier Ford in Ontario refer to each other as their respective uh, uh, therapists and analysts, and they they mutually support each other and defend each other, coming from totally opposite ends of uh, of the political spectrum. That's hopeful. And, and this, this experience, I think, has demonstrated that out of a crisis, good results can be obtained. Yeah. Um, and hopefully, uh, politicians will remember uh, these few months where cooperation actually achieves some pretty remarkable results for Canada. So let's keep trying it. And I want to thank all our terrific guests on behalf of all the listeners, the hundreds and hundreds of listeners, the organizations like Canada 2020 and Global Progress and IFSD that are kind of pulled this together. I don't know if it was therapy, Minister, but it certainly deepened our understanding and the global issue that we're going to have to face, the need for change, perhaps some bold changes and some changes to international institutions. So a big thank you, Minister Goodell. A big thank you, Mr. White. A big thank you, Mrs. Gibbs and Mrs. Gosho for spending our sort of time. And please stay well and enjoy the summer. And so thank you, everybody. Thank you very much, Kevin. Bye-bye, Neil. Bye-bye. Thanks so much.